Now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will come and that you will breathe life into your word to us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a TV show came out in 2004 called The Office. Uh, on NBC, an American adaption of a BBC show from the UK. It was quite popular. It lasted nine seasons. Uh, do we have any Office fans? Okay, good. We got a few. Uh, it's nice to see that The Office is, is experiencing a resurgence in popularity on Netflix. The next generation is discovering it, including Generation Z icons like Billie Eilish. Do, do we have any Billie Eilish fans? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's a singer. <laughs> Apparently, she's quite good. I, I confess I don't really listen to much of her music, but, but I will admit I do enjoy watching The Office, even rewatching. Um, I think Becky and I have watched all nine seasons three times. Uh, we sometimes put it on in the background when we're working in the kitchen, and it's just it's good to have. Um, I can actually remember watching the pilot episode of The Office on the day that it aired. And I remember that I found it funny because assistant manager at Alliance Atlantis University for Cinemas in the University Heights Mall, the basement there. So I could immediately relate to the office dynamics on which the show is based. And when Michael Scott, the regional manager of Dunder Mifflin Scranton, Pennsylvania, shared in the opening episode that he felt his job as manager was one-third boss, one-third friend, and one-third entertainer, the 23-year-old manager in me felt exactly the same. I could relate to that. I, I hope there's pastors that don't feel the same way, but I feel like there might be. <laughs> but um, anyway, as the show continued, it immediately became clear that it was a satire and that the Michael Scott character was to be a bit of a fool. Uh, so my relating to him was concerning and a little bit embarrassing. Now, one prime example of uh, Michael's foolishness is in Season 4, Episode 7, when his girlfriend racks up a large amount of debt. And when he finds out, he freaks out, so he asks the office accountant, Oscar, for advice. And Oscar starts explaining, you know, debt consolidation to Michael, but that loses his attention. It sounds too boring, too difficult. So he turns to Creed, uh, who, I don't know how else to explain him. He's sort of the office wild card. And Creed tells him, all you have to do is declare bankruptcy. And then the debt magically disappears. So Michael stands up in front of the entire office and at the top of his lungs shouts, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> and then Oscar again has to pull him aside and explain to him that's not how it works. To which Michael decides to run away from his debt. So he decides he's going to hitch a ride on a freight train like they used to do during the Great Depression. And then we see him sitting there lamenting the next chapter of this bold adventure in his life, only to discover the train is just parked in the yard. And he, he ends up just sitting there for the rest of the episode, feeling ashamed of himself. Uh, last week, we, we, declared, we declared spiritual bankruptcy, right? As we began our great adventure through the Beatitudes, this introduction to Jesus' first public address, in which he authoritatively explains what God's law in its fullness looks like, what living in the manner that reflects God's character looks like, what 
living in the kingdom of heaven here on earth look like, looks like how this means living right side up in an upside down world. The Beatitudes describe eight ways Jesus' disciples, citizens of God's kingdom here on earth, are blessed. Last week we looked at the Greek word for blessed, makarios, and at how these blessings aren't given in the form of benedictions, as in, may you be blessed in this way, but that they're rather statements of facts, that life in the kingdom of God looks like this. And as we continue our journey through these eight ways in which Jesus' disciples are blessed, we'll come to see that they're not just random facts thrown together, that there is an intentional sequential flow. Remember here that it is Jesus preaching. It is God speaking. He's not just throwing out his thoughts, random tidbits. It's not a word salad. There is an intentional sequential order with a purpose, a goal, to take us from point A to point B. And the introduction to the sermon, the Beatitudes, summarizes the entire essence of the entire sermon, and so there's a sequential flow to them as well, to take us from point A to point B. And the first thing Jesus said was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, belongs to those who recognize that without God they are spiritually bankrupt. That those who declare spiritual bankruptcy and who therefore come humbly to Jesus, ready to turn to him with open minds, open hearts, and open hands, to them belongs the kingdom of God. It all begins in poverty of the spirit, in spiritual bankruptcy. And this brings us to the second beatitude that we're going to be looking at today, which is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Greek word that's translated for mourn is pentheo, and it means to mourn, it means to be sad, to grieve, to lament, to feel sorrow, to weep, to groan. It's one of the strongest words for grief in the Greek language, and it was commonly used to describe those who were grieving the loss of loved ones. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. One of the beautiful truths that can be found in the gospel is that there is ultimate comfort for those who mourn, who grieve, because of the hope that is offered through Jesus. This is what we sang about this morning And this is what we read about in places like Psalm 23, where the writer takes comfort in knowing that even through dark times, even though he may walk through the valley of death and dying, God is there with him to care for and protect him, to shepherd him, to comfort him. But the ultimate comfort that God offers is the hope of eternal life with him, with his people, where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more weeping, as we read in Revelation 21, as we just sang today. And this is the wonderful gospel truth. This is the good news that we remember when we remember friends like Brent passing into glory. But is this simple statement, blessed are those who mourn, for they they will be comforted, is this all that this beatitude is saying. We can't 
as I said, only read this statement as a simple statement, a fact on a surface level. We can't simply take these Beatitudes word for word on their own. If we do, then we're missing the point. There is a sequential order. There is a context. And as N.T. Wright suggests, if Jesus was simply saying, all who mourn will be comforted, then he was wrong. Not all people who mourn are comforted. Many carry crippling grief with them for the rest of their lives. And so again, we need to remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's describing life in the kingdom of God, life for those who have made the commitment to follow him. Because the hope and the comfort that he offers is received through him. But is that all that Jesus is getting at here? As we've often observed, Jesus, God, is capable of doing and saying two things at once, and he often does. And if we dig a little deeper below the surface level and remember to read the second statement in context of the sequential flow of what's already been said in the first statement, then it's worth observing that the only other time Jesus uses the Greek word for mourn, pentheo, is in the Gospel of Matthew, as we heard today, when Jesus says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? They will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus is using this image of God as the bridegroom, which is common in Scripture. He's talking about himself. And through his preaching and teaching, Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and that he is the one ushering it in. This new chapter in history, in the history of God's people, in the history of God's creation, of the world. And that this is a cause for a time of rejoicing, similar to what might be experienced at a wedding. However, in this verse from Matthew, Jesus also explains that while his presence is cause for rejoicing, his absence is cause for mourning. So while this beatitude can and does offer hope and comfort for those who are grieving loss, it isn't just referring to the loss of loved ones. It's also referring to grief over a life that is lived in the absence of God's presence. In the context of the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He then continues with the second beatitude, describing the type of grief that will be experienced by those who recognize they are poor in spirit, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy without Jesus, who recognize the spiritual loss that comes from sin. Because the reality of sin is that as we who are poor in spirit come to Jesus, we can't help but recognize our sinful condition in his presence. As Daryl Johnson suggests, as we come to Jesus and sit in his presence, the more we see of what can be, and the more our hearts break over what is. This kind of recognition should lead us to a state of mourning. But along with that, it should lead us to a longing for God's forgiveness and for healing. So we see in our reading today from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul explains, for godly sorrow, godly grief, godly mourning produces a repentance 
that leads to salvation without regret. This godly sorrow, this godly grief that Paul describes is grief that actually comes from God. When in his presence, we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. We feel remorse. But this grief is a good thing. Because this godly grief leads us to repentance, which leads us to salvation. The consequence of this godly grief is resolve to reverse the course our lives are taking and turn to Jesus and live for him. That godly grief, though, doesn't come naturally to us. It's not a natural state or emotion or way of thinking. It's not a human quality. It is the result of coming into Jesus' presence and Jesus getting our hold of us. It is given to us by God. So when he describes those who mourn, he isn't just looking around for people who are grieving and saying, bless you. He's saying to his disciples that those who become disciples, who hear and trust and follow him, who allow him to grab a hold of them and their lives, will begin to mourn. But this is a good thing. This is the gospel. This is good news. It's a good thing when we recognize our sinful nature and turn to Jesus. And of course, that's only the first step in the gospel. Jesus declares that those who mourn over their spiritual bankruptcy, whose godly grief leads them to remorse and repentance, will be comforted. And this promises the first of a number of these reversals that we find in the Beatitudes. And we see in this promise that in the kingdom of God, the upside-down state of our everyday world is reversed right side up, that those who mourn are comforted. Again, it isn't a promise that whoever is in mourning is guaranteed comfort. That isn't always the case. So what is Jesus saying? Here's something I found really interesting. Again, looking at our Greek words here, the Greek word that's translated for us as comfort is parakaleo. It does mean comfort. Obviously, our translators aren't making anything up. But unlike our Greek word for mourn, which only occurs once, one other time in the New Testament, the word parakaleo occurs 109 times. And its meaning is as vast as its occurrences. It means comfort, console. It means to encourage. It means to ask, to request, to implore, to exhort, to summon. It means to invite. The comfort that Jesus is talking about isn't just in the sense of consoling, not just in the sense of God consoling us and saying, there, there, it's going to be okay. It is that, but not just that. It's also Jesus addressing the comfort he offers to those who mourn their spiritual bankruptcy, their depravity without him because of their sin. Jesus is also referring to the consolation, that there is hope and salvation that's found in him. The comfort he's referring to is also an encouragement to those who are in mourning because of their state of sin. Encouragement that there is forgiveness. It's also an invitation to accept that forgiveness as much as a summons to turn to Jesus and follow him as well as it is an exhortation to allow him to grab a hold of us in our lives and let this reversal take place, to let Jesus Transform us. 
This is the way to the blessing of comfort that Jesus is talking about. As we mentioned last week, Jesus began his ministry with this announcement, the kingdom of God is at hand, and people who were drawn to him, the crowds who were curious, the disciples who were committed, asked themselves, how do I get to be in the kingdom of God? And the Beatitudes aren't the answer to that question. The answer to that question is through Jesus. So when we look at the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount and we see their relation to the law and the Ten Commandments, we might be inclined to say, you know, what wonderful teaching it is. If only people would obey it, the world would be a better place. But if we read it as simply Jesus sitting there telling people how to behave properly, then we miss what's really going on. Jesus didn't come to whip us into shape. Earlier we mentioned how the Beatitudes aren't benedictions, as in, may you be blessed in this way, but statements of fact, as in, this is what kingdom, life in the kingdom of God is like. They're also not imperatives or requirements, as in, do this, and then you will receive the blessing. The Beatitudes aren't a list of behaviors we have to try to emulate in order to be accepted into God's kingdoms. The Beatitudes and these reversals that accompany them, these ways in which people are blessed, are not saying try hard to live like this. Beatitudes are saying that people who already are like this are already blessed. That those in God's kingdom, those who have decided to follow Jesus, are already blessed. And then it says to those who are not already in this state, an invitation to enter into it, to enter into God's care in God's kingdom through Jesus. As we mentioned earlier, there is an intentional sequential order with a purpose, a goal, to take us from point A Point B, to take us from this place to that place, from the upside-down world to the right-side-up world, from a life of sin to a life of redemption in the kingdom of God. Jesus is preaching and teaching. Jesus' words, God's word, are therefore transformational. And as Daryl Johnson suggests in the Beatitudes, Jesus isn't describing eight different people. He's not talking about those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, etc., etc. Jesus is describing one type of person, his disciple, citizen of the kingdom of God, in whom all these things are true or are becoming true as they allow God to transform them. This person has all of these qualities. It's as though Jesus is painting a picture of people in whom he and his gospel are taking hold. The Beatitudes are markers or indicators of lives that have been or have begun to be transformed by the gospel. So that the clearest sign that a person is in fact turning to Jesus in repentance and believing in him as their savior and accepting the forgiveness of their sins that he offers us and responding to summons to follow him and allowing the Holy Spirit to take hold of their life transform them to reflect God's character and be more like Jesus. The clearest sign of these things is that they are becoming beatitude people. So that again, these beatitudes aren't a list of behaviors we have to try to emulate to be accepted by God. 
Beatitudes are statements of facts about ways in which citizens of the kingdom of God are blessed when they allow God to transform them. And last week, we looked at how we get the term Beatitudes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed or happy. Of course, another English word we get from that Latin word is beauty, beautiful. These Beatitudes are statements of facts about Jesus' disciples. Beautiful facts, beautiful truths about the way he has transformed, is transforming, and can transform those who turn to him, reversing the upside down in us and making it right side up. Beatitudes serve as an introduction to Jesus' first public address, in which he authoritatively explains what living in the kingdom of God is like. And they are a list of these beautiful truths. They're a list of beautiful evidence that we have turned to Jesus. Beautiful evidence of what those who have declared spiritual bankruptcy and turned to Jesus are now and are now members of the kingdom of God look like. Beautiful evidence of what those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have allowed or are allowing the Holy Spirit to come into their lives and transform them look like. It's beautiful evidence about many of you who are sitting here today. You who have made these decisions. These are a list of statements of facts, beautiful truths, beautiful evidence about what you look like now or are becoming. And these statements of facts say that because of this, you are already blessed. That's something to be happy about, to rejoice, to celebrate. So again, our goal isn't to go through this series and follow these instructions. Our goal is to turn to Jesus and allow him to transform us so that these facts, these observations, this evidence about people living in God's kingdom, these beautiful truths will be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways that you do already bless each one of us. We thank you for these promises. And we thank you that these Beatitudes aren't things that we need to try to do, that they're beautiful evidence the way you have transformed and are transforming our lives. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that we would continue to come to you, that you would take hold of us, that you would continue this beautiful work in each of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.